Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We are continuing our series of interviews with the Democratic candidates running in the new 10th Congressional District of New York. There's no incumbent running. This is a new district. It's a rarity. Uh, the redistricting process was chaotic and messy, as many of you know, but there is now the new 10th Congressional District. The representative for the current 10th Congressional District is Jerry Nadler, and he's running in the new 12th District. And so this new district, which covers a large swath of lower Manhattan and a big stretch of Brooklyn, is seeing a crowded and competitive field of candidates ahead of the August Democratic primary. The neighborhoods of this district include, but are not limited to, the East and West Villages, the Lower East Side, Chinatown, Tribeca, Battery Park City, the Financial District, and more in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, parts of downtown Brooklyn, Gowanus, Park Slope, Sunset Park, Red Hook, Borough Park, and more. The field is large. It's distinguished, including my guest today. Elizabeth Holtzman was, at the time, the youngest woman elected to Congress in 1972, and then the first woman to become Brooklyn District Attorney and then New York City Comptroller. She held all those positions over the course of roughly 1973 through 1993, and in 1993, she lost her re-election bid for Comptroller. During that period, she did a lot, and she'll discuss some of the highlights here with us in a moment. Additionally, Elizabeth Holtzman almost became New York's first female senator in a very tight race in 1980 and made another run for the Senate in 1992. My conversation with Elizabeth Holtzman shortly. Also in the running here in the new New York 10 are City Council Member Carlina Rivera, Assembly Members Joanne Simon and Yulene New, former Trump Impeachment Counsel Dan Goldman, and others, including a sitting member of Congress, Representative Mondaire Jones, who currently reps, represents a Hudson Valley district, the 17th congressional district, but given a whole bunch of fallout that I won't get into all the details of now from the redistricting process, he moved to Brooklyn recently and he's running in the 10th congressional district. No longer in the running in this race is former Mayor Bill de Blasio, who dropped out on July 19th after receiving little support. As I said, primary day is less than a month from when we're talking now here on Tuesday, July 26th. August 23rd is primary day. There are state Senate primaries. There are House of Representative primaries on that day uh, coming on the heels of the June primary where we had statewide and state assembly primaries. And then all the winners will get to compete in the fall general election. If you want to look at the contours of this district or others, check out the redistricting and you New York service from the CUNY mapping service and our friend Steve Romalewski there. You can uh, play with that interactive tool to look at lots of information about the new maps, the current maps, and much more. And it's not too late to register to vote or to change your party affiliation in order to vote in these primaries coming up in August. In recent weeks here on the show, we've spoken with a number of the candidates in the 10th Congressional District primary, including Carlina Rivera, Dan Goldman, Joanne Simon, and Yuli New. And we're very pleased to be get joined here today by Elizabeth Holtzman. And we'll see who else we can bring on the show of the top candidates who have some momentum in polling or fundraising or name recognition and so forth. Okay. 
Elizabeth Holtzman, thank you very much for being here and taking the time. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, let's uh, let's hear the broad strokes. We'll get into a lot of the details of your of your past and your vision for representing this district in Congress in the future. But the broad strokes in terms of what drew you to this race, why are you running for Congress here in 2022? Uh, I'm running for Congress because these are very dangerous times. We have an a right-wing, out-of-control Supreme Court trying to take our rights away. We have a former president trying to get reelected as president through fraud and deceit. We have a MAGA Congress of Republicans uh, threatening uh, economic rights and, and our climate and so forth and enabling the out-of-control Supreme Court and our former president. At these, In this time, when a new district was created, I live right in, I think, the geographical center of the district. I said to myself, you know, I'm not a sidelines person. This country is in danger, and I have the background, the skills, the know-how, the guts to take these dangers on and try to defeat them. And that's what distinguishes me from my colleagues, and that's the motivation. If we were in normal times, I wouldn't be running for Congress now. I'd be on some kind of vacation. Hmm. But for the fact of the matter is, I don't want to look at myself in the mirror as we go downhill towards authoritarianism and worse and say to myself, I did nothing about it. And the fact of the matter is what I bring to this is is uh, eight years of experience in Congress. I was chair of a subcommittee. I got many bills through. I, most importantly, I took on Nixon and I took on the, the anti-democratic forces at that time. I was also Brooklyn district attorney, the first woman in New York City ever to be elected district attorney. And I took on all kinds of issues dealing with crime and violence against women. Uh, I was controller of New York City where I helped to finance affordable housing, took on issues of climate, took on issues of pollution. So I come with a lot of experience and know-how, but most important, I'm a practical person and I want to get things done. I don't want to go to Congress to issue press releases, to uh, stand in front of press conferences. I want to get things done for the people of this district and for the country. You mentioned having been in Congress um, uh, during the Watergate scandal, taking on Nixon uh, and the Judiciary Committee. Are there lessons that the country learned then that have been forgotten now uh, in this in this Trump era? Obviously, uh, two impeachments of of Donald Trump, where he was um, uh, acquitted by the Senate uh, both times, but. trying to undermine the election results of 2020, a number of, of scandals, obviously. And you you mentioned some of those attempts and some of those forces. Your experience during the Nixon years, are there lessons the country learned that have been forgotten that need to be that uh, people need to be reminded of? Or are we looking at very different situations here? Well, in some respects, the situations are very similar. You had presidents out of control, but we had an advantage which was in part that there was a, the Department of Justice, actually through the special prosecutor, was moving against the president. Now we do not have that. And as you know, the Mueller investigation was uh, when he wrote his report, 
was it was basically uh, maligned and um, mischaracterized by Attorney General William Barr, who said that um, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, had exonerated Trump. That was a lie. That wasn't true. And a judge said that it was misleading as well. So here we have the public being told that by the Justice Department that Trump did nothing wrong, that he was exonerated in connection with the Russia matter. And then after that, there's been no investigation of him and there's been no uh, investigation of his conduct in connection with the insurrection. Merrick Garland has to read history. If he can't remember it, he has to read about it. The Constitution explicitly allows for the prosecution of someone who leaves office for misconduct or criminality in office. You can't ignore that. The framers of the country can't say, oh, maybe this is not good for the country. Oh, maybe we have to have healing. Oh, maybe you have to be nice to Republicans. That's not what the framers said. The framers said a president does something bad. The president criminal. The president is open to prosecution. So why are we ignoring that? And why are we ignoring what Nixon, the Nixon process taught us, which is that when Nixon left office, he basically never came back. Why? Because every one of his top aides was put in jail because he himself was named as an unindicted co-conspirator because the criminal justice process worked against him as well as the congressional process. The smoking gun tape came from a grand jury subpoena. Where are those subpoenas today? Merrick Garland has to wake up. So um, it'll be very interesting, obviously, to see what the Department of Justice does here, especially as we um, continue to watch these uh, hearings. All I'm saying saying Mm -hmm. is that the insurrection took place on January 6th. Yeah. Our impeachment inquiry was basically over and the smoking gun tape was released only a few days from now, you know, in 1974, almost 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So where is Merrick Garland? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. By this yeah. time, you know, where are the top aides that have been indicted? Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, finally, we get someone who's in contempt, but those people, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, were, were prosecuted and convicted and sent to jail for substantive crimes, not for refusing to testify. Mm-hmm. So let, let, this speaks to one of the pitches you're making and, and the reason you said you're running here for Congress, which is, you know, unique times and, and your unique background, uh, as you said just a minute ago. Um, if, if it were, weren't the current circumstances, uh, you'd, you'd be on vacation somewhere. Um, say more about what what makes you unique and what your pitch is to voters here in this crowded, competitive primary. You have a number of accomplished colleagues running, competitors running, people who are currently in office, uh, both in Congress uh, city council, state legislature. Say well, with more, all say, due respect. Say more about what sets you apart. Go ahead. Well, with all due respect, I mean, the city council is not the U.S. Congress and neither is the state legislature in Albany. So nobody aside from one candidate who is uh, from upstate New York and who is in his first term in Congress has any experience uh, uh, with the U.S. Congress. I I was in Congress for eight years. I had a a record, huge record of legislative accomplishments. 
So that's one thing I can bring. I, I would not be in this race if I didn't think I had something special to contribute. And that's what people are telling me on the streets. That's why they're supporting me, because they know my record, not just of standing up and speaking out, but of getting things done. I'll just take my first term in the U.S. Congress. I brought a lawsuit to stop the Cambodia bombing. It was a landmark lawsuit, and we won in the lower court, and we won from Justice Douglas. I stopped President Nixon had proposed a state secrets act. My very first bill stopped that act from going into effect. If it had gone into effect, maybe we never would have found out about Watergate. I uncovered the presence of Nazi war criminals in the United States and started a decades long action to bring them to justice. That's just in my first two years of Congress. So I'm just saying that there's a record of accomplishment that is really unmatched. And I'm just bringing it to the people of my district, of this district, hope to be my district, mm. because we we need somebody who can take on this court, who's not just going to grandstand, but who actually has a record of accomplishment and knows how to get things through Congress and knows how to go outside the Congress. And so that's what I bring. Say, say more about what that would look like. Take us forward now. You're elected let's say for the sake of this discussion, you're part of a democratic majority. That's obviously not a given and is, is a pretty uphill mm-hmm. battle, but let's say right. you're in the majority. What does that look like? Um, what are the ways in which you would be able to exercise that experience, that creativity? What, what do you, what can you tell people that um, would be sort of top of the agenda in the ways that you would uh, follow through on, on that pitch? Okay. Well, not necessarily in order, mm-hmm. but Uh, one of the things that people are very concerned about is gun violence. And I've been concerned about it since the first time I was in Congress and as DA, because you put a gun in someone's hand, all of a sudden they're no longer a coward, they're a killer. And we've suffered too much with that. And it's a kind of chain that goes or tunnel or pathway that goes from the South, driving all these illegal guns into our city. We've got to do something to stop it. One of the things I want to see, I mean, even with the Democratic majority, we may not be able to get any legislation through Congress on this issue. Of course, I would support um, a ban on assault weapons, uh, large magazines, uh, uh, excess handguns, and, and also requiring gun manufacturers to become liable. In fact, the first bill that was introduced, one of the first bills in the country that holding gun manufacturers liable was one that I introduced when I was controller. So that, but what I think needs to be done, aside from if you can get legislation through, great. I don't think so, but I'm going to fight like hell to get that done. Mm -hmm. But we can, we need to start asking the federal government and state governments who that buy billions of dollars in munitions from gun manufacturers to start saying to gun manufacturers, hey, wait a minute, don't sell assault weapons. You want our business? Don't sell assault weapons. Or if they don't manufacture assault weapons, hey, you want our business? Do not sell so many guns into the illegal channels that will get to New York City and kill people. That that kind of thing is actually happening in a, in a um in a uh, private lawsuit in, in connection with the, those that gun, the slaughter that took place in Connecticut several years ago. Mm-hmm. The gun company, the gun manufacturers agreed to have the gun to monitor the sales of guns. So why can't the federal government do that? 
We don't need legislation to make them do that. You just need someone who has that smart idea and says, let's do something about this. And so let's use our power, the leverage of all of these purchases to get gun manufacturers to change their behavior. That would be one of the top items on my agenda, as well as legislation in that area. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'd want to do is deal with um, affordable housing, because I had some experiences controller in that area. I uh, We financed when I was controller tens of thousands of units of affordable housing using the city's pension funds without any risk to those funds. We could try to replicate that not only around the country, but also uh, enhance and broaden those programs in places like New York. That's something I'd like to do because I have experience doing it and because it works. And we need to repair and exist our existing housing stock of affordable housing, and we need to create additional affordable housing. And the third area I'd like to work on is is uh, the environment. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I'm an avid kayaker, and I know when I see the trees that are dying on the shoreline, that's a direct result of climate change because of the rising sea levels and the salt that now gets into the roots of these trees that were able to live on the shoreline 10, 12, even five years ago. So we don't have to go to Greenland and we don't have to go to the North Pole to find that the consequences of these rising water levels here right in New York. So I want to take on that issue and try to get Um, the president to take actions himself to get and also legislation, if it's at all possible, to reduce the subsidies for the fossil fuel companies to audit. This doesn't require legislation to audit whether those fossil fuel companies are paying the federal government the proper share of royalties that they owe the government. No one really audits them. It's kind of a self-regulating system that never in my judgment works properly but that's the kind of thing we if we if we got money from those programs if we could stop the subsidies or reduce the subsidies and get more money from the audits we could use that money for example for mass transit we mm-hmm. could use that money for charging stations for electric cars so there are things that we could do right now you expressed some frustration with the department of justice attorney general merrick garland um there's been a lot of frustration directed in in that same direction, but also at Democratic leadership of the, at the national level. Uh, President Joe Biden, Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, who obviously is is from your neck of the woods uh, in Brooklyn, and I'm sure you know quite well. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, those three, the three major Democratic leaders right now. Um, what do you make uh, of their leadership and how they're approaching issues like? The filibuster, like um, using more executive powers to respond to the Supreme Court rulings on Roe and other issues. What do you make of of the Democratic leadership at the national level right now? And and what would your message to them be if you are in the next Congress? Well, first of all, you can deliver it now, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, to be a little bit um, cautious. 
Uh, first of all, with regard to President Biden, we came to Congress at the same time. So I've known him and we've known each other for a very, very long time. I know him probably even before his wife met him. Mm. So he's a very decent person. He's a caring person. And this country owes him a debt of gratitude that can never be erased, no matter what he does, by when he beat Donald Trump and and denied Trump another term of office. He saved this country from fascism. So I'm just very indebted to Joe Biden. Could he be doing, I mean, is their messaging proper? No, I think Biden has done some important things. Could he do more? Could he have gotten his act together more quickly? For example, on when the Supreme Court decision on abortion came out, they should have had a to-do list ready about all the things they were gonna do. They didn't, okay, but they're gonna get it ready. And he will act appropriately about that. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not really frustrated. The president's got a lot on his mind. He's got a war going on in Ukraine. He's got China breathing down his neck and Taiwan. And he's got Joe Manchin refusing, you know, saying first he's going to help on some bills and then changing his mind. I mean, it's been tough. I'm not saying plus he got a mess that was left to him by Trump. Uh, but so I, I can't. Uh, I'm not going to uh, attack him. Uh, certainly not yet. And uh, as far as Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer took my seat in the House when I ran mm-hmm. for the U.S. Senate. And I think he's been trying to do a good job in the Senate. I, I, you know, people say, well, he hasn't ended the filibuster. Well, you know, you need votes. <laughs> you need votes for that. And look at where and you don't even have all the votes on the Democratic side. So how are you going to do that? You can't just wave a magic mm-hmm. wand and then all of a sudden things happen. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, you have to give her enormous amount of credit. Actually, if you go back to the Affordable Care Act that Obama proposed, if it hadn't been for her leadership and her stewardship, that legislation may never have passed the House of Representatives. We owe that to her. She's a very effective very savvy person. Do I agree with her 100 percent of the time? I don't necessarily agree with myself 100 percent of the time, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to criticize her leadership. I think we have a lot to be thankful for in her. The, there are Democrats who who sort of are are myth that Biden and Schumer particularly haven't been able to, f- to sort of figure out what to give Joe Manchin to get him on board with uh, some some version of the Build Back Better agenda, even if it's extremely slimmed down, you know, some major climate action and some other things. Um, he's obviously sh- shifted the goalposts numerous times, it seems, and, and Manchin seems particularly challenging to negotiate with. But are you of that mind that you sort of um, are a little bit miffed as to how um, the president and the the Senate majority leader haven't been able to sort of figure out what to what to just give Manchin to get something big done on another set of policy priorities here? Well, there may be nothing to give Manchin. I mean, I'm sure they're trying. You know, it's very easy to sit on the outside and poke holes in what people are doing. Right. But you don't know all the offers that have been made. We don't know that. And we're, I feel reluctant to uh, criticize the president for that because I just don't know enough about what Manchin has been offered and what he's been what he's turned down. And he's been a very slippery person. It seems to me some people might even say, you know, he's trying to get publicity every time he turns the president down, leads him on and then turns him down. So I think it's a very dicey situation. The real problem here is that not enough Democrats turned out in the presidential election to vote for the lower ranks of, of candidates. And so we got 
you know, a 50-50 split in the Senate and a very narrow majority in the House. And we've got to do better. Democrats who care about it. I mean, you know, it's one thing to attack Biden, but you really want to do something about it? Elect more Democrats to office. Make contributions, even if it's a dollar or two or five or 20. Let's get Democrats elected. That's the way you're going to give power to Schumer and to Biden and to the and to Nancy Pelosi to get through an agenda that we really need on on climate, on guns, on women's rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's come back to your 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 uh, decision to run in this race and and how the race is shaping up. Um, there's obviously. Uh, some limited polling out there and, and some of it shows uh, that that you've got a, a solid uh, start here. And uh, with just a few weeks to go, there's uh, the, the largest percentage in all of the polls we've seen is undecided. What do you make of the of the lay of the land in the race? And, and what's your thinking on your your path to victory? And I mean that in terms of there are there's probably some solid constituency uh, who is who has known you in the district for for a long time and and remembers your work in in Congress and perhaps as Brooklyn district attorney and New York City controller. Um, And then you obviously need to grow from that. Who are the Elizabeth Holtzman voters that you're particularly trying to appeal to? And and how do you see your your path to victory here um, in over the next few weeks? Well, given the expected low turnout in this district, um, I don't know that it'll be low turnout, but if there's a very low turnout, I might be able to win just with the people who voted for me in the past. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I wouldn't discount that or minimize that. And not only that, but I, I'm joking a little bit, but yeah. the, the, the truth of the matter is I have been so um, surprised and energized by the response I'm getting from voters on the street. People who know my record, who know what I stand for, are so enthusiastic about my candidacy. Um, it's really great. Um, you know, sometimes people even scream when they meet mm-hmm. me. Oh, my goodness. It's so wonderful. It's a little embarrassing. So I think the first thing we have to do is to make sure that everybody in the district knows I'm running and those people who support me know that I'm running and we have to make sure that they vote. That's the critical thing. The second thing is, of course, to expand that base of support to people, other people, people who know my record um, are very impressed by it. For example, I'm the only one in this race and Gloria Steinem is supporting. She's not a politician. She's not supporting me because she's going to be working with me next year in the city council or in the state legislature or in Congress or whatever. She's supporting me because of all of my decades of work of fighting for women's rights and never giving up. She knows me and I'm really so honored by her endorsement. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I, I, I really think that when people know the record, they know that, for example, When I was DA, I was the only district attorney in America, not just in New York City, in America, to call on the Supreme Court to ban racial discrimination in jury selection. Nobody would join with me in that. But we were able to persuade the U.S. Supreme Court to ban that. And the Supreme Court acknowledged the work of my office in a footnote in their decision banning the use of peremptory challenges on a racial basis. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's the kind of person I was. I mean, when I was uh, in Congress, I mentioned it earlier, in my very first year, I found out that there were Nazi war criminals living in America. 
and spewing out their hatred and their vitriol, not to mention making an example of their criminal conduct. So nobody wanted to deal with that problem. Nobody cared. But I made it my, I mean, not only did I expose the problem, I didn't just have a press conference. I worked on the problem until there was a new law that strengthened our ability to deport these people and also got a special unit set up in the Department of Justice. When I was New York City controller on climate, the mayor, who was a Democrat, proposed building nine new polluting incinerators. I worked with all the major environmental groups in New York. We got together. I organized them together. And we took on this proposal. We put an end to the proposal. And that in and of itself led to the shutdown of every single polluting incinerator, municipal incinerator in New York City. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's my record. It's right out there. People want that. Don't vote for me. But if people want someone who knows how to get things done, is prepared to stand up to no matter who, and is prepared to take on bad guys, that's me. Vote for me. I, I see in some other interviews you're getting a, a version of this question. And, you know, one of the sort of um, criticisms you're getting in, in running this race is um, you had this accomplished career. There's there's a bunch of young, uh, dynamic, democratic, progressive uh, candidates in the race. Why potentially block you know, one of them, if you're able to be successful Excuse from me. Excuse <laughs> me. Why should they block me? And why should they block? No, just turn that question right sure, around. Sure, sure. I understand turn that question that. This, right around. No, 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 no. You can't just say I'm blocking them. They're blocking each other. They're running against each other. I'm just bringing something different from all of them in this race. I never. And it's up I, to I the have, voters. Obviously. That's right. And I think the voters should have a choice. And the idea that that uh, someone of my age can't do the job. Well, you know, there's some people when I ran for D.A., there was a bias about women in office. I remember going campaigning for when I was running for D.A. for the first time in Brooklyn, first time in New York City that a woman was running. Voters came to me and said, Liz, you know, we love you. Great record in Congress. And we voted for you for Congress and so forth and Senate and blah, blah. But this is not a job for a woman. They thought it was too tough for a woman to be D.A. Well, after I was D.A., they said, you know, something woman can be a D.A. That question never came up again, never came mm-hmm. up in Brooklyn and didn't really come up in New York City because they that preconception went out the window. I think as soon as people see that I've got the energy and the guts, the the intellectual ability and the physical ability to do this job, then they're not going to judge on me on basis of how many years have passed by chronologically, the, how tall I am, how much I weigh, the color of my eyes. No, they're going to try to, to assess, am I someone who's going to fight for them? When the chips are down, am I going to fight for them? And is anyone going to buy me off or stop me from doing that? And am I going to fight for them, not just stand up and fight for them, but fight in a way that's going to produce results? That's what people want. And I think mm-hmm. that's how people are going to vote. Just to be clear, I was not questioning your ability to do the job. I, it was more a question about, you know, the decision whether or not to sort of say, okay, the next generation is coming up and I'll, you know, let let the next congressperson be from the next generation or something along those lines. But, maybe um, if we, but maybe point if taken. We, but maybe if we weren't in this emergency time, mm-hmm. that point would resonate. But mm-hmm. it's not resonating with me now because I know how close we're coming to fascism in this country. Mm-hmm. And everybody basically knows that, except the MAGA Republicans. 
And so we can't go around with business as usual. That's not what's needed now. And I think people in this district understand that. And that's why I'm running. Um, I don't need on the job training. Do you get a sense of of ageism in in some of the criticism you're getting? Mm -hmm. Not from the voters. When I go Mm -hmm. out on the streets, you know, when people see me in the middle of that hot sun (laughs) campaigning, handing out leaflets, talking to people, walking around, (laughs) they say, what about from your competitors? She can do the job. Not well. None of my competitors have said that to me to my Mm -hmm. face. I don't know what they say behind my back. No, no, I I haven't heard anything. I just I'm not you know, I'm not at every forum or every, you know, block party or wherever you might get, you know, bump into some competitors or be on the stage with them. So, all right. So um, say a little bit about um, what you've been doing since leaving elected office. I think, um, you know, you've been involved in some uh, appointed positions, but you've also been in some private practice. Uh, Tell tell folks just a few highlights of sort of that private sector work and and what you've been what you've been up to in in the recent uh, decades. Well, uh, as people may know, I'm a lawyer. I uh, was one of the women in a very small group of women <laughs> admitted to Harvard Law School when I went there. Um, there was a quota on the admission of women when I went to Harvard Law School. Anyway, so I've been practicing law, but, you know, I can't people just won't let me <laughs> practice law quietly. So uh, I've been asked to be on several commissions, uh, federal panels. So uh, President Clinton appointed me to a panel dealing with uh, uh, secret classified U.S. records on Nazi war criminals. The U.S. government had worked with Nazi war criminals. It was a secret and and ugly history, and that required declassifying documents in the possession of the CIA and other intelligence agencies. And I was one of three members on a a panel uh, overseeing that declassification effort, one of the biggest in this country's history. Then I was asked uh, more recently to, to serve on two panels dealing with sexual assault in the military. Uh, That was very interesting. We had to deal with reviewing the the military code of justice. We had to review different kinds of procedures that were in the military, some of which did not protect victims um, uh, properly. There were trial procedures that were not, uh, in some cases, adequate. So we had to review the entire way in which sexual assault victims were treated and the process took place and write reports on it and make recommendations. That was a lot of work and uh, was very privileged to be part of that. I hope we made a difference. And then, of course, here in New York, I was asked to serve on transition committee for uh, the attorney general, Tish James, and then also for Ken Thompson, who became D.A. of Brooklyn and sadly died mm-hmm. um, not too long after he took office. Uh, so uh, I've, I've kept my hand in government, not so much in politics since then. Mm-hmm. Um, you could probably list 20 of these, but name one very sort of hyper local issue in the in the 10th congressional district that you would really pay close attention to. Uh, obviously, listeners here and I heard you speak broadly about climate and housing uh, and, and gun violence. Those are obviously broad sweeping issues. But in terms of like a, a local issue of concern to one of the communities in this New York 10 district, what's something sort of top of mind that you would look to take on in Congress, um, whether it's securing more funding for something or it's changing a regulation or whatever it might be, um, sort of a hyper local neighborhood community issue that's that's top of the agenda for you? Well, not hyper local, but pretty local is the cleanup of the Gowanus Canal. 
mm-hmm. which uh, it's, it's a toxic site. It's one of the most polluted areas in the country. And that pollution is something that doesn't stay right in the canal. It affects the surrounding neighborhoods. There's a lot of development going on in connection with that. And there's a cleanup of the canal. There's some environmentalists and local activists who are concerned about that. I want to understand the issues in depth. I want to deal with uh, if, if if the cleanup is not proper, you, you can be sure I'm going to fight that tooth and nail. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we fought those, that incinerator plan. We, we actually went out, my office actually went out and tested the burn temperatures of the existing incinerators. And we saw that the burn temperatures were too low to burn off dioxin, which meant that dioxin was being released right into our own communities in New York City. Well, we, you know, we publicized that and we got that plan shut down and we got those incinerators shut down. And that's the kind of thing I'm going to do. I'm going to find out the facts. I'm going to meet with the community and I'm going to I'm going to try to make sure that whatever cleanup that takes place there is thorough and proper and uh, and accept broadly acceptable scientifically and environmentally. You're listening to Max Politics here with Ben Max. We're in our last few minutes with Elizabeth Holtzman, who's running for Congress in the new 10th Congressional District of New York, which includes a large section of lower Manhattan and a swath of Brooklyn, including neighborhoods in downtown Brooklyn, Gowanus, Park Slope, Red Hook, Sunset Park, Borough Park, and more. Uh, just a few last questions here. Uh, some A couple of, of sort of short answer questions I'm asking uh, all the New York 10 candidates that I'm talking with are, are these following uh, few. Uh, do you think it's time for the Rikers Island jail complex to be under a federal receivership? There's a monitor. There's some debate with the Adams administration about how much time they should have to enact their reform plans and whether um, you know there will be a, a federal takeover of the jails. Do you think it's time for that or do you think more time for the Adams administration to turn things around is warranted? Uh, I think it's long past time for the federal government to have taken over Rikers Island. Uh, We just, you know, even though the, and I'm sure that the mayor is doing this in all good faith, uh, even though the um, corrections department and the mayor committed to do the right thing, someone after the court denied um, a federal takeover, someone else died. I mean, that's unacceptable. We cannot have people dying because corrections officers or the system in the jails is not adequate to provide at, uh, proper medical care. We cannot have that happen. That's unacceptable. And it's been going on too long. So as far as I'm concerned, something's wrong with what happened with the monitor. The monitor should have been out there screaming and yelling. I don't know why the federal government wasn't more insistent. Uh, maybe they, they should have thought about appealing the order of the judge. But I, I think it's an emergency situation when people are dying mm-hmm. and unnecessarily. So I, And I don't know what the city government is doing about it. Maybe they ought to be taking some more action with the city council and and state government. Where were they in all of this? So I really just think that that the action should have been taken before and it's too late. I mean, it's not too late. It's delayed. It should be. It should have been done and it still can be done and should Mm -hmm. be. The New York City Housing Authority, public housing, obviously um, there there's a federal monitor there as well. there's tens of billions of dollars uh, that are have been part of different drafts of the Build Back Better plan that we were discussing earlier. There's a lot of hope that 
somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to $40 billion would be heading to NYCHA from the federal government for much needed capital repairs. But short of that type of uh, immense funding, is there a NYCHA revenue generating strategy that you support? Uh, you know, there's a variety of, of methods that are either partly underway right now or that have been long debated. Is there anything to bring revenue in for NYCHA repairs that you're particularly supportive of that isn't just the federal government sending an immense amount of aid? Um, well, I, I mean, I have to study the various proposals uh, further. Uh, I think they should be reviewed. But I think one of the things that has to also be examined very carefully is how the money that they're already getting is being spent and how those repairs are being done right now. I mean, there is maintenance going on right now, but it's mm. apparently quite horrible and totally inadequate. So uh, a lot has to be done with regard to public housing. When, when, you know, years ago, public housing was a gem, not just for New York City, but for the country, providing safe, clean, affordable housing to people in need in New York. And that's what it has to be. And it's been neglected far too long. It's not going to be, it's going to be something that I will pay attention to. And if I can be helpful, you bet I will be. Mm -hmm. I'm also, I think we can look for new sources of money. That's important. But we also have to make sure that the monies that we're spending are being spent properly. I mean, what I mentioned to you before about auditing oil company royalty payments right now, you know, we're subsidizing the oil industry in many ways. And one of the ways that we may be subsidizing them is they pay a certain royalty on the gas and oil they withdraw from federal lands, but nobody's auditing them. So how do we know that they're telling us the truth? I mean, there could be billions involved there. You can't just let money go without checking. And that's the kind of thing I think we need to be doing because you've got that money. You could then use it for mass transit. You could use it maybe for non-climate cleanup things such as housing. I mean, there are lots. We need the money and we could use it. We could put it to very good use, but we got to make sure also that the money is used properly when it gets to this to the uh, object. I, I mentioned in the introduction that former Mayor de Blasio dropped out of this race recently. Um, you've seen a lot, obviously, in your in your time and in your government tenure and since. Um what do you make of what happened to his uh, prospects and his his political standing? Um, this was obviously someone uh, ushered into office as a progressive response to the to the Bloomberg years. Uh, he had eight uh, years as mayor, which until the covid crisis, you know, he had uh, many advantages in a robust economy and, and low crime. Um, and now he enters this congressional race and, and drops out after receiving so little support in an area that includes his you know, original home, political home base in, in Park Slope. Uh, any any sort of takeaways that you have of, of that arc for him and, and what sort of went so so wrong for him? Uh, I don't really want to comment about mm-hmm. uh, Mr. de Blasio. I'd like to talk more about, you know, questions that about what can be done in the district and what needs to be addressed. I mean, one of the other issues that has come up has to do with this new uh, park that's going to be created on the Lower East Side that apparently in, to be in, is designed to be very resilient. In the mm-hmm. process, 500 trees were cut down. Now, you know, I mean, 
to me, cutting down trees, why are we doing that? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, I think most, if not all are, are being, we're, we're being moved, you know, as no, part no, of the no, 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 you can't but. old trees. You can't replace mm-hmm. old trees with new trees. Read a book called the hidden life of mm-hmm. trees. And that'll tell you that it's not, mm-hmm. it's not a substitute. Mm-hmm. And I just remember when I was a Congresswoman, and the Department of Transportation, U.S. Department of Transportation, wanted to give us money to repair Ocean Parkway, which is a beautiful street designed by one of the great um, designers in our country's history. He designed Central Park and Prospect Park. They said, oh, well, we're going to put up Jersey barriers and we're going to cut down the trees. And guess what? Mm-hmm. I said, you're going to do the highway, but you're not going to cut. You're going to repave Ocean Parkway and make it a beautiful street, but you're not cutting down one tree. And that's what happened. So, you know, if you put your foot down about cutting down trees, you can you can succeed. You, you, your, your understanding is that a, a major resiliency project there could have been done without cutting down trees? I don't trees. know that it could have been. Mm-hmm. All I know is that I, if I were a congressperson and somebody came to me with a project that involved cutting down 500 trees, I'd look at it not once and twice. I'd look at it a hundred times before I went ahead with something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you something. If you tell people they can't cut down the trees, they can always figure out another way to do it. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, interesting thoughts from Elizabeth Holtzman, uh, my guest today. Thank you for taking the time. Elizabeth Holtzman is, of course, a former member of Congress, former Brooklyn District Attorney, former New York City Comptroller, and now a candidate for Congress again in the new 10th Congressional District of New York, spanning parts of Manhattan and Brooklyn. Thank you for the time and be well. Thank you very much. 